Thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with my good friend, Ravine Das. Rav has a master's degree in human nutrition and metabolism and is a certified nutritionist with a real passion for nutrition education. Rab works extensively in the field of corporate nutrition, as well as working with athletes on both a team and one-to-one basis. Today, we're going to be breaking down some interesting, recently published nutrition papers. Let's talk science. So, we have a very, very uh, fun night lined up for everybody tonight. Uh, before we get into that, uh, Rab, do you want to give us a little bit of an introduction? Uh, who you are and what do you do? Please. Um, sure, yeah. Um, so, for... Those of you who may be unaware of me, um, which is probably likely, um, my name is Rabin Das, and I guess you could say I am a nutritionist. Um, it's what I do most of the time, and I pretty much help people with whatever their goals are. Currently working more on the performance side of things, that's just the way things go, but have worked with a couple of people from a clinical standpoint, from just general health and weight loss standpoint. And yeah, I enjoy looking at research, but not going too much into it, but more so trying to find things that we can make practical for people. Or if it's just plain interesting, it's like, wow, that's interesting. So that's kind of where, where I'm at with all this. Very good. Um, so yeah, the reason I wanted to get you on is because one, you're an incredibly handsome individual and I like, like looking at your face. So it's nice to be able to do that, you know, more frequently. Uh, I didn't get yeah, enough. Easy on the eyes. <laughs> easy on the eyes, indeed. Um, but I know that you really, really, you love nutrition in, in a holistic sense of the word. And I really, really wanted to kind of get you on board to do this kind of, um, this kind of episode that we're going to do tonight, where we're just going to basically geek out a little bit on nutrition and what we like um, and what, we kind of nerd out on. Would that be a fair enough? Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah, pretty much. What we're doing. Just, just out of curiosity, so your, can you kind of tell us a little bit about your own interests in nutrition? Like, what kind of papers do you normally read yourself? Oh, boy. Um, this is interesting because uh, obviously you had Rebecca on earlier in the week, and it was earlier in the week, wasn't it? It was like it was two days ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yikes. Um, well, I mean, similar to her, I've got a couple of alerts set up um, with a couple of different journals. And I think one of the main, so I get one from the Journal of International Society of Sports Nutrition. I get one from like microbiome. I get one from um, sports injury and rehab just because it's like a side interest. And like I'll have a flick through those once they come through, if they're anyway interesting or if I feel they're particularly relevant um, and they kind of add to what's out there, I'll definitely have a read through them. Other than that, I've got a, a Google alert set up for something of interest for you, I'm sure, sarcopenia and um, kind of obesity. So those two together, mostly more sarcopenia related because I do have a keen interest in that. Um, going back to a project I was going to be working on a few years back, but we, it never really materialized. So I keep up to date with that when I can. Um, I have one for... Um, kind of like intermittent fasting or alternate day fasting kind of thing. So I get updates about that. And then I've won for um, artificial sweeteners. So anything that comes up about that. And that tends to be hit or miss because like when you think about it, there's not, I would argue that there's not a lot of like new stuff that's kind of groundbreaking that comes out. At least it kind of either aligns with what the general um, 
consensus is on everything or might be kind of say, well, we found this, but it's not exactly meaningful. So we've got that, we've got obesity and energetics, obviously keeping up to date with that. And then just stuff that piques my interest from time to time. Um, like weight stigma currently is uh, of interest to me. Uh, anything that kind of turns up out of there is always kind of interesting. And that goes back to something I'm sure we'll discuss in a while. And yeah, that's kind of it. So very broad, obviously anything that comes up performance wise when it comes to low energy availability, things like that, I'll definitely have an interest in because it helps me apply stuff to people I work with. Absolutely. I, I think with a, a lot of people who have a genuine kind of passion for nutrition, um, it's very, very easy to go down a lot of different rabbit holes. Yes. Um, <laughs> like it's very, very, especially when you get something like, um, like you, you mentioned the obesity and energetics review and for anybody listening, um, Definitely check out the Obesity and Energetics Review. It's fantastic. Does it come out twice a month, Rob? I think I think it's it's every week. It's every like Friday or Saturday. Is it every like, week? Least, yeah, yeah. My, mine are really backing up at the moment that, uh, because I haven't been uh, I haven't checked them in a while. But okay, right. Yeah. Um, it is, so it the, is every week. The Obesity and Energetics Review. It's a fantastic review um, of a whole host of papers related to. Not exclusively obesity, but nutrition in general. And they also throw in a few wild cards with, with research papers. And there are some things that you, you just don't even think about when it comes to, you know, I, I've never like heard about research into that or I've never even thought about research into that. And it's kind of, it is really, really cool because it kind of, it opens your mind to a few different areas that you might not have thought of before. Um, I, at, le at least I feel that way for myself. Um, yeah, I, I agree. And there's often times like for people who can't get into the, like, the nitty gritty of stuff or don't want to at another time. There are some interesting commentaries from like both sides. So they'll be quite fair in what gets put into it. So it's, you know, if there's a one paper that says one thing, but then there's a commentary or a comment or a response to it, they'll put that in there as well. And then they'll even use kind of like more journalistic type stuff that appears to maybe fit the bill of what they're trying to um, talk about. So one of, one of my favorite things actually out of that, uh, the OBC Energetics Review, is they do a, uh, it's a comparison of headlines with the actual yeah, title. Yeah, yeah. That's absolutely brilliant because you'll usually see some sort of tabloid-based headline that's like, oh, this one nutrient associated with a 25% increased risk of death. And then they'll show blah, 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 a little bit of an increase in risk in mice or something like that. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's always very interesting, yeah. So today we're going to talk about a few uh, different papers that we've got um, basically a, an interest in that we've read recently and that we kind of want to talk about. And I was wondering, uh, Rab, if you'd like to start us off with one of yours. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so, okay, so maybe, maybe of interest to people, maybe not, but I picked this one for, I suppose, kind of a couple of reasons. Most people are interested in kind of increasing their, I suppose, their ability to lift and like maybe they're into more kind of physical training from an aesthetics point of view. So I picked a paper based on that. And also I picked it because one of the authors is actually a guy I did my master's with. So it's been interesting to track his um, progression in the academic sphere while also his like bodybuilding career. So I picked the paper on sort of practices of natural bodybuilders. It was a paper that came out by Eric Helms and Andrew Chappelle in 2019. And I mean, when it comes to groundbreaking stuff, there's nothing out of the ordinary for it. So from a population-wise, they use drug-free competitors, which obviously is important. And 
like there was a, I suppose, a standardization process for this because they were polygraphed, which was cool, but also they had to have had a recent drug test from their most previous competition. And, and they, were, they were actually recruited during the last competition as well. So during the competition, I think Andrew went over and he actually recruited the guys for the study, which was kind of cool. So that's part of the way in which it looked at it. It was 47 um, altogether, so 33 males and 14 females, um, mostly a mix of pro and amateur. Um, and so it was basically comparing the two. So what, what are the key defining features between um, pro bodybuilders and amateur bodybuilders when it comes to nutrition practices, uh, supplementation, and sort of down to like the calories and like macronutrient distribution over the course of a um, kind of like prior, during, and after a competitive phase. So quite interesting. Okay. Yeah, so from a results point of view, so some of the things that they measured included um, sort of length of length of diet, um, weight loss aspect, which was pretty interesting. Um, as I said, the macronutrient intake was something that obviously is going to pique a person's interest because in the pro group versus the amateur group, there was a um, a larger reliance on carbohydrate from the get-go. Um, and also you had a possibly a larger energy intake to start off with. Um, and then at the middle, it was still larger versus the middle of the amateurs kind of intakes. And then at the end, it was still kind of higher. So um, I suppose the key finding in that was relating to the length of time that these guys are dieting as well. So we always, you know, when we try and extrapolate this to general population, which sometimes it's difficult to do, um, there's always this idea of, well, should people be dieting for longer or should people be dieting for a shorter time frame? And obviously in this context, it's very goal dependent. So the goal of a pro professional natural bodybuilder is to get to the best conditioning level as possible um, without sacrificing lean muscle tissue. So these guys would on average diet for, I think it was close to 28 weeks. So the pros dieted for 28 weeks, uh, like, that was the average, and it could up, it would go up maybe by maybe I think eight more weeks, or like standard deviation was up by eight weeks potentially, versus amateurs tended to diet for that kind of 21 week um, window. And then in terms of the the differential in weight, weight was ten, weight loss tended to be quite different. I think it was like 13.4 versus 13.1 um, kilos. But if you looked at the weight loss per week, what was shot for or what they shot for within that kind of loss was 0.5 versus uh, a little bit more um, for amateurs. So that kind of showed there was a little bit more of a um, desire to lose less weight over time. Because um, 28 weeks is a long time to diet for. And it's a long time to see kind of tiny changes. So that 0.5% loss over time. But obviously, if you're a professional, um, then those things are considerably important. Yeah, there, there was a, there was a lot of cool stuff like in that paper. Like some some of it you will read and you'll be like, oh yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And then some of it you're like, that makes perfect sense. But that's also really really good to know as well. Like especially when you know you mentioned there the uh, the carbohydrate intakes, you know, being higher in the uh, the professional group when compared to the amateurs. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And like, so you can say from one thing, so the professionals were bigger than the amateurs, um, apparently. Um, so that, that could account for that. But the cool thing was, is I think uh, uh, I had a look, a look through the paper and one of the cool things was that the, the pro group had a smaller relative energy de deficit than the amateur group. So they, like you said, they were losing at a much slower rate over time. And like, just out of curiosity, that slower rate, what do you think, like what kind of physical effects or kind of, let's say, endpoint effects could that end up having on people? Well, losing at a slower rate potentially leads to what better performance and training outcomes. So perhaps that's, I mean, that's the goal that they want to shoot for in that environment. So if you're going to be dieting for 28 weeks, you want to maximize your training capacity, training quality over that time frame. So that's probably something you consider. Um, and I think that's probably the main outcome. And I think that's why the carbohydrate intake was at such a higher level. So recommendations-wise, um, it's, I think, even in what one of the authors, I think Andrew Chappelle, commented that the recommendation is sometimes like four grams to seven grams per kilogram body weight as a starting point. So, yeah, as in, like, you probably start off at that seven and then maybe make its way down to four. But when you consider what most people would recommend, it's rarely like that. Now, that could be potentially speaking to the amount of training that's being done, but mm -hmm. still quite high. It, it, it was, like, I, I, to be honest, I was quite impressed with how much carbs some of those pro bodybuilders were able to, uh, to knock yeah, back. Yeah, it was considerable. Um, so one thing, uh, that I found particularly interesting was, um, I had a look at the, so they did a really, really cool analysis of people's diets. Obviously they got the macronutrient breakdown and stuff like that. They had a look at what people were taking as supplements. And I was wondering, did you have any comments on, um, on that at all? Um, yes, actually I looked at it and it was quite interesting because everyone takes protein for sure. That was like a, a big, a big, um, finding, like I think it was like a hundred percent. Of, of the competitors took a protein, a powdered protein. And um, the other thing was BCA, B, like, you know, branched chain amino acids was still a considerable, um, I think it was like 87% in the yeah. pros actually. So, um, like that, that's a, that's a big one. So like, this isn't to say that this approach or this idea um, has, you know, that, that it's the right thing to do, but it's just something, uh, an existing practice within this um, group of individuals. So um, that's obviously an interesting one. I think further down, obviously creatine was definitely there and a few other of the usual ones were there as well. But like, it's always surprising to see that considering the, I think the grams per kilogram body weight of protein was close to like three in some yeah. cases. So, I mean, obviously we, we talk about protein intake and you know what what's actually needed but obviously some things die die a hard death and they're hard to break free of considering 87 i think because 87.5 percent so like one like obviously with protein people are going to be taking and there's going to be a few different benefits when you're when you're dieting you know there's going to be like there's going to be some benefit to satiety i don't know if there's going to be that much of a benefit if you're going from like you know 2.5 to 3 grams per kilo or something like that um, 
But there is also the potential that, like, when people are dieting, people are more anabolic resistant. They're not getting as much out of their training, and slightly higher doses of protein can be useful. But um, I think bodybuilders are definitely on the, let's say, the, the side of the scale or the side of the um, uh, the spectrum that leans more towards the more protein I get into my body, the better. Um, yeah, I, I think so, and and certainly. I guess at that level, it is kind of a case of, screw it, I'm going to do whatever I can. Like, they're not taking drugs, so I'm like, you know, if it's an extra, like, 0.5 grams that I need to take on board per kilogram of body weight, I'm going to give it a shot. So, like, the other thing was, like, I don't know whether you looked at the, the fat intakes, but some of them were, it was like 0.6 to 0.7 grams per kilogram of body weight was the starting point, so it's... It's a very high-protein diet, very high-carbohydrate diet, and a very low-fat diet mm-hmm. overall. So um, that was interesting. And then even the, the fiber intake was particularly interesting. So fiber intake, as you would expect, started off a little bit on the kind of lower end of what's recommended. And then towards the end, like from the beginning, or from the middle to the end, was actually higher, as you would expect, because of potentially the decreasing in kind of other forms of carbohydrate and a focus on trying to maximize maybe like food volume and satiety so that because 28 weeks as we said is a long time absolutely i I think there's a huge amount to be said about that like so this is a a really really low fat diet really really high in carbs obviously you know a very very decent amount of protein as well um and i i kind of like to think of bodybuilders as professional dieters um yeah uh, these are, uh, and I think you, you got to separate bodybuilders from the rest of the population because bodybuilders are incredibly motivated. They they mm. they're able to draw on a wealth of, of um, let's let's use the word willpower uh, for want of a better word um, to basically get through their whatever eight months of dieting in some cases here, um, and none of them were lo- using you know exceptionally low carb approaches and you know, one of the main reasons for that is if you want to continuously train hard, carbs are going to be your, your best friend, right? Yeah, 100%. Like, there's there's no, like, magic kind of requirement for them, but if it enables you to do more, that's kind of what you need within that time frame. And obviously, as we keep going on about the length of time, you know, if you can't get those in, we know that from, like, an adherence point of view, if there's some level of enjoyment in there, if you know a pro bodybuilder can enjoy that kind of dietary style or that pattern of intake for a little bit longer, probably a little bit more allows a little bit more focus towards that. Because then, if you, I don't know whether you saw the distribution of, um, I suppose the the type of foods that were that were eaten, um, like mostly, like this is the thing that's real interesting. We can we can probably use this as an example to say that there's, like they don't do anything different to what we would recommend from a just general health point of view, there's plenty of, you know, grains and cereal-based things, and not like breakfast cereals, but actual, like, cereal-based things for the people listening, obviously. Um, Poultry, dairy, like, low-fat as well. Um, Plenty of veg, like, tubers and eggs are kind of, like, the main components that were used. And then there's, like, minimal amounts of processed foods and minimal amounts of, like, confectionery and things like that. which again just speaks to the whole idea of being consistent with that dietary pattern probably yields the longest kind of return of investment 
And these guys are like walking return on investment when you think about it because of how long they take to do this. Um, and nobody drank on the uh, yeah yeah cohort. No one was drinking at all, which was amazing. Yeah, very very interesting. Very interesting. Um, um, one thing that I thought was really it, it, it surprised me. Okay, obviously the, the BCAA intake. I was like, just because they said that you know in the natural bodybuilding world you've got more people who are more let's say evidence based inverted commas again. Um, and following evidence-based practice, and the amount of people using branched-chain amino acids—you said it was like 87 percent. Uh, that was uh, that kind of shocked me. But what also surprised me was that creatine intake. I I assumed, never assume. Okay, it's the worst thing you can do. I assumed that it was going to be 100 percent in in both men and women, and yeah. it, it was only 87 percent in men, which is it's high, but it's still like why is it not everybody? And then uh, it was only 60 percent amongst the the female bodybuilders. I just didn't expect yeah. that at all. Yeah, those are those are some surprising stats from that. Like you, the expectation is that this would be something, but again, it's maybe those myths surrounding. Oh, is it something I should be doing? Is it not something I should be doing? Um, still persist in this kind of population because just from you know experience and a little kind of observation, tend to be quite focused on. Cool, I'm not going to change anything that that doesn't work for me from time to time. So that's something you gotta, you gotta think about. So perhaps it wasn't a case of, I don't think this will work. It's just a case of, I don't want to introduce something that is un, unused of my uh, normal pattern. Um, that along, I got, just so, just so everybody knows, that just fell straight off my table, my mic fell. Anyway. Um, what I was going to say was what also surprised me was the intake of fat burners. Um, uh, again, I was impressed in the male population just because the intake of fat burners, only 25% of people were using them, yeah. which was great. But then if you look at the female side of things, the women, 60% of female competitors were using fat burners, which again, it's, it's kind of showing that you know, there's, there's still quite a bit of work to be done um, with kind of dispelling some of the myths about that. Yeah, and even like at a high level with the, both the pro and amateur, again, it's just something surprising that you, well, I don't know. We can always say that you wouldn't expect it, but sometimes, you know, those the, the top levels or, or close to it, you know, it's just the norm. It's just what's been done, and you don't want to change that. You don't want to change the ritual. You don't want to change too much because year in, year out, it's like, cool, I'm only adding X amount of muscle per, like, competitive cycle, so... You know, why not just keep keep the pattern? Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I guess there's going to be a huge amount of dogma in whatever you do, every kind of yeah. sport. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of clear. Like, like I'm not expecting people to, to, like, this isn't us being like, hey, this is the pattern and the way forward. It's just like, cool, what can we take from this? And my suggestion would be they're very consistent with their diet. They don't do anything magical. Um, they have a higher carbohydrate intake because their overall lifestyle and their avenue of recreation and in this case profession dictates that they can do that um, and then everything else underneath that falls in line with that overall goal and that's what allows them to be able to do that you know they still stick to the main things that we always promote as you know consistent dietary patterns plenty of veg etc and then they actually choose less aggressive deficits. So perhaps for some people that might be something to look at um, versus 
always opting. I know from my own experience, people coming to me saying, cool, I'm doing a show in, you know, 12 weeks and you get shredded. I'm like, cool. Um, top in time machine, come back to me at like 20 weeks or something like that. And you'll have a much better time. It'll be more enjoyable, but obviously it's that kind of approach. They're more methodical with it because they want to actually hang on to their lean tissue as much as possible. I think we can learn stuff from here, but I'm not saying that we should go out and mimic bodybuilders, but you know, Absolutely, no, it was, it was a cool paper. And, like, you know, looking at what the pros were doing, the pros were taking their time. They've been in the game a little bit longer. Um, they probably also built up a lot of resistance uh, to be able to actually diet that long and mental mental uh, grit. But, uh, no, that was a really cool paper. Uh, just for anybody who wants to check it out, it's called Nutritional Strategies of British Professional and Amateur Natural Bodybuilders During Competition Preparation. And the lead author is A.J. Chappelle. Is that right? Uh, yeah, Andrew Chappelle is the, the, lead, the lead author on that. So he actually won his pro card, I think, this weekend, or this past weekend. What's his, uh, what's his Instagram tag? Uh, fueled by Scott Oates, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I've been yeah. following him recently. Um, the guy is in Good Nick. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, that was a cool <laughs> um, yeah. All right, so I want to – we'll move on to another one, and we'll do one that I um, – I found, I'm going to be honest, I can't remember where I found this paper, um, but it's like one of those things you read the title and you're like, what? what's going on here? I'm going to have a read, and then you kind of get enthralled into it. Um, is just the one about constitutional thinness? Yes, it is the one about constitutional thinness. So the Pretty title, much aliens. About what? Pretty much aliens. Pretty much aliens, yeah. Um, so just to give, to give people the title, it's persistent low body weight in humans is associated with higher mitochondrial activity in white adipose tissue. Okay. Just so we're completely clear before we even start this, this is of little practical relevance to anybody at all. But <laughs> I, like, the amount of times I read papers, is like, this is cool, but it's just, yeah, nobody gives a damn about, like, what can I get out of this? How is this going to make me jacked? How is this going to get me, you know, shredded? There's none of that in this, but it's, it's fun to read. So just to give people an overview, the study wanted to look at people who have what Brad just mentioned here, which is called constitutional thinness. And constitutional thinness, it's something that's not mentioned a huge amount in the literature. And it's previously, basically somebody with constitutional thinness is exceptionally thin, surprisingly enough. Um, to get diagnosed, they have to be below a BMI of uh, 19, or actually, I think, even 18.5, mm. um, which is a low enough BMI, in some cases, to be diagnosed as anorexia nervosa. The only thing is, people with the condition, they eat normal amounts of food, um, they don't have any mental issues at all, um, they have uh, normal metabolic rates, they have normal blood work, normal hormonal profiles. They may, uh, women maintain menses. They maintain their menstrual cycle. They're for all intents and purposes, they are completely healthy. Um, they are just incredibly skinny. And uh, like, man, you know, uh, I'm sure you've seen some people like just walking around the street someday and you say, "Wow, that that guy's skinny." Um, yeah, yeah. That's probably that guy, or it could be. Um, but they wanted to know why are these people so skinny and what's going on. Um, because they're healthy and there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with them, people just wanted to find out why. And like, just to kind of talk about like finding stuff out, somebody, I, I once heard somebody use the word, so they were asked a question about nutrition and it wasn't something that was completely practical, but their response was, 
it doesn't even matter. That's just mental masturbation. And I was like, this is science, man. Like, you know, if we want to understand things, we need to like look at stuff and everything that we look at is not going to be immediately practically relevant. But I, I think it's just like, it's just part of, you know, people having a, a questioning um, mindset. Just It's just natural to want to know how, how things happen, right? Or am I wrong? I don't know. No, no, I think you're right on that. Like with this thing, it was definitely a case, like this is the first time I've ever heard about it. I was like, this is crazy because obviously a big thing is their the what the mitochondrial activity within their adipose tissue is is like significantly higher uh-huh. than which is which is essentially part of the uh, I suppose the the way in which they actually develop that constitutional thinness. Yeah, yeah. So so basically, so if you imagine this, these people, funnily enough, despite the fact that they're incredibly skinny they still have norm, relatively normal proportions of body fat to lean mass because they've also got reduced lean mass on their bodies as well, considerably lower lean mass. Um, and so the whole point of the study was to look at what's going on metabolically in these people um, that makes them thin. And then they also did something cool. Um, and I like it when like these kind of, uh, these again, this be called a basic science approach. When these basic science um research papers have a multitude of different experiments going on. So they also did an overfeeding experiment in just to see what happens when you you give these guys extra food, what what goes on. But what they found was one of the cool differences was they did a biopsy of their adipose tissue. And like you said, they had different adipose structures. So in these guys, so if you look at somebody who is uh, normal, what you'll see is adipose tissue is, uh, consists of adipocytes, which are adipose cells, and they can be quite large, and they can tend to swell and get bigger. And one thing that happens in obesity is that they swell so much that when they get beyond a certain size, you start to see metabolic dysfunction within those adipose cells, and then that's when we start seeing things like extra inflammation and leptin resistance, insulin resistance, all of that kind of bad stuff. But in the uh, constitutionally thin people, what happened was they had much smaller um, adipocyte areas, much smaller And then what they did was they wanted to see, was there anything going on in these small cells? So this is where where you mentioned that they they noticed a difference in metabolic activity. What they did was they measured mitochondrial DNA within the cells, and they found that the cells had a much higher proportion of mitochondrial DNA compared to a regular fat cell. And so if you have a lot more mitochondria in the cell, mitochondria are our, obviously our fat burners, are not our fat burners, are our energy producing, let's say, mechanisms or machinery within the cells and they found that we had they had more mitochondria they were producing more energy over time um, and this was one of the reasons potentially that they were able to well that they were continuously so thin um, and that just kind of it just kind of it's it's nothing kind of mind-blowing but it's just super interesting to see why are these guys so skinny yeah I mean, that, that's something that I was wondering about. Like, what's the, like, is this kind of a, not a genetic kind of abnormality, but is this like a byproduct? Like, would would this be of, of some evolutionary significance, perhaps? Or is this just a case of some people exhibit this due to gene, different differential gene expression in some area? So th- those are kind of things that I was thinking about. And obviously the other interesting part was the, the overfeeding aspect didn't really result in anything massively different. Was it 600 calories for four, 600 calorie surplus for 14 days? 
Yeah, the games. Yeah, um, so this was a, a nicely um, a sponsored by Nestle um, investigation. Yeah. So they had some sort. I'm going to assume it was some sort of um, uh, you know those drinks that they give to older people to senior citizens to. Yeah, yeah, like Compline, that kind of thing. Exactly. I, I'm going to assume it was something like that. I didn't. I didn't look into it. But they gave them that for 14 days. Now the interesting thing was they gained weight after 14 days, and they gained pretty much the same amount of weight as the control group, which was uh, not constitutionally thin. They did gain weight, but they did also see that um, the constitutionally thin people, their basal metabolic rate increased in proportion to the amount of food, just like the, the, yeah. the non-constitutionally thin did as well. What was cool was at baseline, they found that they actually ate more. They had a kind of a higher calorie intake than the... Um, than the control group. And one thing, this was only mentioned very, very briefly in the study, and they didn't go into any details about it, but they said that they, they snack more frequently and that they experience more hunger than mm. normal people. Um, yeah, did they say something about leptin in, in that as well? They or? said they have very low leptin, which isn't surprising if they've got yeah. lower levels of, um, lower, let's say, not relatively lower, but like uh, absolutely lower levels of uh, adipose tissue as well so yeah yeah that was, that was pretty cool too so that they're, they're 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 more hungry they experience more hunger they eat a bit more but their metabolism is just revved up a little bit more they also had a higher core body temperature which i thought was pretty cool as well um so something's they're happening the x-men they are literally but that's exactly what they are and i think studying uh, x-men is cool one thing that i wanted to mention about this is because one thing people know when it comes to like metabolic adaptation things like that uh, a molecule that's com commonly mentioned is uh upc or uncoupling protein or EP, excuse me um uncoupling protein and what that does is that normally uncouples um uh the electron train from uh, the electron transport system from uh atp synthesis and what you do is you get a loss of energy and that mean that means that like some people who have a higher ucp uh, output, they, they actually they burn off a little bit of extra body fat as body heat. Um, but these people, they didn't have that. And it was all down to, they're burning more body fat, but they found they, yeah, they're actually, I think they called it uh, lipid recycling. So what they found was that they were actually producing more uh, triglycerides within their cells, and they were also burning more triglycerides. So it was literally this constant process of burning energy and like wasting energy, which results in them getting thinner. Yeah, because they mentioned something about how they're different from, what was it, lipodystrophic people? Yeah. So it wasn't as if there's a problem there. So, like, it's kind of, yeah, it's just a very, very interesting subgroup of human beings. So, with those, those, those lipodystrophic people, like, sometimes you can get, like, some serious metabolic issues. So, they often have... Uh, issues with fat storage and what happens is you get fat getting stored in like very very strange parts of the body um, yeah. and then you get real serious issues with like fat getting deposited in um, in the endothelia in into arteries they've got high blood lipids they're at really really high risk of like heart disease and things like that as well but these these constitutionally thin people didn't they were like literally healthy just really really thin yeah it's um, again I was like whoa these are I was, yeah, it's just cra crazy because I thought, oh, this is just some kind of study and then there's a, a subgroup of people that exhibit these characteristics and yet are, I suppose, quote-unquote, could be could appear to be healthy. I suppose some of the, the questions that arise from this of, 
like what would happen if they, you know, because I don't think they looked at any particular lifestyle factors in this or anything like that. It was more just their overall, just health characteristics, health markers, that kind of thing, versus anyone that was doing a particular dietary approach or, you know, um, you know, physical activity, that kind of thing. So it'd be interesting to see how that affects, you know, because people people have a differential response to activity and exercise, hunger signals change. Um, so it'd be interesting to see, I suppose, just thinking about that as a potential there, but, you know, maybe uh, later. They did look at, the, the one lifestyle thing they did look at was activity levels, and apparently there was okay. uh, there was no difference uh, between activity levels, which was which was also interesting. Um, so just as lazy as the rest of us. Just really weird. Yeah. <laughs> Speak for yourself, man. So that one was, persistently, the body weight in humans is associated with higher mitochondrial activity in white adipose tissue. And the lead author on that was Ling. So Yin with two eyes, Yin Ling. Um, yeah, pretty cool. Um, yeah. Out of, out of France. Um, so what do you, which one would you like to look at next, Rob? Uh, I'll look at the, the white potatoes and eggs one. So, again, this one... I, l- I like this yeah, like I, again, I was reading it over again. I was like, "This is an interesting one for a couple of reasons," and it's more. Yeah, there's a couple of points that I like. Oh, this is interesting. But the the title is "Effects of White Potatoes Consumed with Eggs on Satiety, Food Intake, and Glycemic Response in Children and Adolescents." And the main author is Jennifer J. Lee, and it was printed in what was it printed in? The American College of Journal of the American College of Nutrition. So. And first of all, off the, off the top of this, the reason why this is interesting is because of the, I suppose, in culture, in our, our culture, there's like that kind of persistent distrust of eggs. There's persistent distrust uh, or mistrust of potatoes as well, despite the fact that both of us are of Irish descent and love the potatoes, the humble spud. Um, so, again, it's just interesting to see this, and obviously in light of more recent documentaries that shall not be named, the idea that eggs are, um, you know, on this list of things that should never be eaten by anyone, you know, it was just interesting to see this. Now, essentially what they're looking at was the effect of a mixed meal on, like, food intake following the first meal consisting of the treatment, um overall satiety and like blood glucose markers and like interest wise the key ones for me that i were were inter- i was interested in looking at was the the subsequent food intake and satiety aspect because you know potatoes are high on the satiety index and so foods that would be considered the most filling and eggs are actually also on that too but also eggs are are a, a protein source so as far as I'm aware, what they did was they had like a group of nine to 14 year olds, a mix of boys and girls. And it was a kind of mix of normal and overweight individuals. And the, basically the methodology was to have one group have the, a, a one of four treatment meals. So they're all isocalorically matched. And you had um, an omelet, which was 204 calories. And then you'd either get a side of mash of fries or, uh, white beans. So, and that that was made up to 246 calories. So overall, the treatment was 450 calories. So again, l- large sizable meal, good sized meal, quite a mixed meal, as as they would say. And then the control meal was 
what was understood to be a standard breakfast. So that was like either bread and jam and like tea, breakfast cereal or other kind of breakfast confectionery thing. Again, isocalorically matched up to 450 calories. So controls got that and the um, treatment meals were one of the four. So that was the first thing that was interesting. Now, again, if you look at like speculation, you'd be like, okay, cool. So one group is getting mash and an omelet. One group is getting fries and an omelet. And when you look at how this was done, they were fried in canola oil as well. So, I mean, just interesting. So it's like not exactly when we talk about potatoes and their satiety effect, is that effect going to be similar with something like French fries, essentially. So an interesting point there. And then obviously one group got beans, so beans high in fiber, et cetera. So something to consider. Um, looking through this, it was very interesting from the actual methodology of what was done. I don't know why you had a chance to look at this, but they did the first meal. So you had kids come in and they were asked, you know, a couple of questions about making sure they hadn't eaten beforehand. They hadn't done this, um, hours slept, a couple of things like that. And then they were given their treatment. They're put into like a cubicle and they're given their meal um, kind of very prison like. And then here, here's where things got quite interesting. And the, I don't know where, what to take exactly from the, the findings of the paper um, overall. I think there's some that's quite congruent with what we understand about satiety and mixed meals and things like that. But this is quite interesting from a food environment perspective and perhaps some of that, those kind of like hedonic signaling patterns that we you know, might or we should pay attention to. They were given an ad, limit, ad libitum pizza lunch three hours later, okay? So the description is literally, they would receive a warm tray of pizza every 10 minutes of their choosing. And they would continue to eat until they felt comfortably full. So again, this this was just an interesting setup. Um, and then the, the next step after this, which again is where some flaws in the methodology could obviously be um, considered as a limitation, but also you have to consider it's very hard to study probably children, adolescents without parental involvement, but their parents were essentially given like a paper food record to write down. And this maybe lends itself to some ideas later on when you look at the, the rest of day energy expenditure or energy intake, because that was basically reported by parents and not by the, the children. But that whole thing, if we can pause there for a second and understand how wild that is of a like a methodology to have like a basically a pizza buffet three hours later and observe the effects of like satiety from eggs and potatoes. So again, um, quite an interesting aspect there. Looking at the the food in or the the um, post meal food intake. It appeared that some form of the potato mixed with the egg was going to um, put a stopgap on the post, like the, the, the ad libitum pizza buffet aspect of it, which, you know, potentially is to be expected given satiety. But also when you consider that, you know, you're, you're asking a, a child to basically self-regulate their own eating of pizza when it's like, well, pizza is pretty 
stimulating from a food reward response point of view. So are we challenging that? They didn't really mention whether they're looking at that aspect or if that was going to be a, a limitation or a challenge to that aspect. But again, worth consideration. Um, so tidy was better with the mash and the eggs and in, like was still better with the beans and the eggs to be expected. But for some reason, the fries and the eggs scored quite well as well, which I don't know. I, I, there were some, there's interesting points in there for sure, but a couple of limitations perhaps to consider and the controls or well, the, yeah, the controls weren't, the control meal wasn't exactly protein matched relative to say, obviously you, you're getting um, 30 grams of protein with the egg, the omelet side, and then having the carbohydrate side there. Um, fiber intake varied across all of the, um, the meals, including the control meal and each intervention meal. So fiber was actually high, was highest, well, match highest with the um, control meal because obviously it included some breakfast cereal. So I think it was like seven grams. Um, similarly, the beans were seven grams and then the mash and the fries were three versus one gram. So again, there's a little bit of discrepancy there perhaps. Um, yeah, so those are kind of things to look at. And obviously the authors mentioned themselves that the it would be good to investigate um, food volume and energy density of that um, like a food volume because obviously they made the mash with like liquid and that will change the I suppose how the meal is digested um, then obviously because the things were fried the fries were obviously fried in canola oil is that going to change the um, gastric emptying speed all those kind of things were are worth considering here but then in the conclusion like they said that french fries were kind of cool to shoot for it's like and I was like okay all right. Um, so of all the things, perhaps I understand that the mashed potatoes didn't yield the same or maybe the expected result they did, but they still perform quite well when you look at the actual individual data points. Um, but the the result was, yeah, French fries are, are, are grand. Um, and then obviously when you look at the maybe the long-standing things here, like this is a prime example of a paper that if a, you know, like the science journal aspect of a like a tabloid got their hands on, they definitely just pull that thing of science says French fries for breakfast is cool. Eat your chips. Um, yeah, eat your chips. And then obviously you look at there's okay the sort the funding source is, and we obviously discussed this before, uh, you know, um, about is funding and kind of a thing, but it's it's like funded by the the potato standards and education advisory board or something along those lines and because there's potential for products to be kind of benefit from here i am purely speculating that perhaps french fries were listed in in a more favorable light relative to say having mash because of the effects that it might have on sales of french fries yeah uh, there, there were a lot of um, companies specifically mentioned the ones that contributed to it yeah. got McCain's supplied all of the potatoes. Yeah, yeah. Heinz baked beans were used. Then they had Cracker Barrel cheese was in the office. By the way, um, I was talking about this study earlier with uh, Georgia, and I was like, I, I would love to be in this study because yeah. we got, for one thing, 450 calories breakfast for, like, these were what, 9 to 14-year-olds? 14 14-year-olds, 14 yeah. That's, like, that sounded to me like a pretty big breakfast. Um, 
Just yeah. And then you get unlimited pizza. Like they were literally told, eat the pizza until you're full. Um, and that, that that was one cool thing about it because they had a couple of different ways of looking at society. So they had like um, subjective uh, appetites. So they were just yeah. ask, asking kids, how do you feel? And like we know with subjective measures, it's it's never. Obviously, it's subjective, so everybody's going to have a different um, opinion. Uh, yeah. Subjective measures don't always track well with what we we care about, and what we care about is is food intake. Yeah. So they did measure, you know, the, how much pizza kids were eating, and then they they measured, you know, how much food they ate at the at the end of the day. You know, their parents uh, did their their food diaries for them, um, and it was cool. One thing that kind I I found very very interesting was how. The, the meal with beans did not do all that well, and the meal with mm. beans, like you said, had the highest fiber content, and it also had the the highest protein content of all of the meals. So I suppose that just goes to show the the specific benefits of potatoes themselves. Like we, you know, we know that they've got a massive satiety index, like one of the highest of any food around. Um, and I I thought that was pretty impressive. Um, but there's one thing that nobody mentioned in the entire study, but it's right there in, in the results. I just want to scroll down to, um, to see where it is exactly, right? So obviously you've got your, your, different, your different groups. You've got your control group, which had the cereal breakfast, and that was calorie matched. And then you've got you know, your mashed potatoes with omelet. You've got your French fries with omelet. You've got your beans with omelet. And then they have the meal skipping group that nobody talked about at the end. Yeah, that, that was an interesting thing because – they kind of brushed over that even in the results. And I was kind of like, well, if you look at that, that's going to be pretty important. Right. To consider. Yeah. Because like, so what, one of the measures that they took was like total calories consumed at the end of the yeah. day. And I just want to see like for the, so the total calories consumed for the control meal group, this is a lot of calories, by the way, for a bunch of kids, that's 2,624 calories average. Yeah. That's a freaking. That's a lot, man. Um, but that and, and when and also, if you look at the rest of the day intake, considering that it potentially is a self like a parental reported thing, mm-hmm. I mean that's less. I mean it's nine hundred sixteen. It's like under a thousand calories over the over the well, apart from the the meal skipping one. But how accurate is that going to be in the totality of what's being included? Very, very true. Like you know, I, but I, I suppose that's going to be an issue with any kind of study where you have people yeah. self-reported data like that. But so the control meal that was two thousand six hundred, and then in the the French fries meal, the meal that was supposed to reduce intake the most, they had a total intake of two thousand uh, two hundred twenty-eight. So four hundred calories less, which is impressive. Yeah. But that was also identical. Let me see. That was identical, pretty much, to the meal skipping group. So yes. the group that just you know you didn't get any breakfast, um, they had the same thing, uh, and they took in the same amount of calories. They didn't overcompensate really that much at all compared. Yeah. Like they, they ate less than the control group. So yeah. there's a bit to be said there for like the inter- intermittent fasting approach. Like you know if you if you want to uh, if you want to eat less, just just eat less. You know, just skip a meal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, don't don't think about. Think too much about the uh, that kind of breakfast portion of things, particularly obviously, you know, no, again, no one's going to have eggs and French fries for breakfast. I I would hope as a <laughs> as a starter, but to go forth. But again, an interesting overall approach. Um, again, a couple of things that I'd be sure I'd sure be skeptical about, but you know, it doesn't disregard the effects that perhaps potatoes will have. Like, again, if if 
we're to say, you know, go eat, you could have ad libitum potatoes as long as they're not fried or, you know, covered in sauce. They're literally, you can, you can mash them, boil them, bake them, and oh. add, add, add salt, and then try and go and eat as much as you can of that. You know, chances are, and I'm pretty sure they, it's been shown somewhere that, you know, it is a viable treatment or a clinical like dietary approach from a weight loss perspective. So you've got to look at that. I, I did hear of somebody doing an all potato diet once, um, which sounded a little bit sad. As much as I love potatoes, I don't think I could make them my, my one dietary staple. Um, but yeah, that was, that, that was a, a really, really interesting study. So Sweet. the last one I wanted to talk about was something a little bit, a little bit controversial. It's always sure. good to suggest something a little bit controversial. Um, so the first one, it, it's actually two papers, but the one I really want to talk about is the second paper. But the second paper is based on the first paper, so I just want to give people a bit of an idea of what's, what's going on here. Um, so the first paper is called Effects of a Low-Carbohydrate Diet on Energy Expenditure During Weight Loss Maintenance Randomized Trial. Okay, this, uh, and the main author on that is Cara Ebling. So that's E-B-B-E-L-I-N-G. Um, some people will also be interested to know that uh, one, two other authors on that paper were Rob Wolf and David Ludwig. Okay, so um, very much in the low-carb um, side of things. Now, the interesting thing about this paper was, okay, so just to give an idea of what, what, what people did here was, they had people lose a set amount of weight, um, I think, over a period. Let me see. Do, 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 do. Um, so people had to lose 12% of their body weight to be qualified for the study. And what they had to do then was maintain their body weight on three different types of diet. You had a low-carb, a moderate-carb, and then a high-carb diet. And what they wanted to measure was, was people's um, resting metabolic rate um, and ener sorry, energy expenditure, excuse me, um, over time to see if there was going to be some sort of a metabolic advantage to having a low-carbohydrate diet. Um, and I thought this was pretty interesting because at the end of the study, they found that there was a, a major difference. And they actually, I just want to, I want to read this out so I don't get it wrong. Um, the difference between the low and high-carbohydrate diet was 308 kilocalories a day in the intention to treat analysis and 478 kilocalories a day in the per protocol amount. So uh, just so for people who may, might not be familiar, intention to treat analysis uh, takes into account everybody who starts the study, um, even if they don't finish it. Uh, so from a mechanistic perspective, it doesn't give completely accurate results, but it gives us a good indication of results um, if they were to be applied in a real-life situation. But with the per-protocol uh, analysis, that only uses people who complete the protocol, so it's a little bit more um, scientifically rigorous and tells us what's actually going on mechanistically. And it said, so there was a difference of 478 calories um, in metabolic rate between the, the people on the low carb and the high carb. And this, I, I don't know, did you read this paper when it came out? I think it came out, uh, yeah, October 2018. Did you read this at all? Yeah, I, I remember I remember there was a big furore over it and I had a look over it. It's, yeah. Very interesting. A couple of points in there for sure that are, you know, worth having another look over. And anytime there's a response such as, such as this, which is the one Kevin Old put out, obviously there are some questionable issues with it. Yeah. So, 
So I read it and I was like, Jesus. I like I I read through the paper and I was like, I I I can't I can't see anything wrong with this. I don't know what's going on here. Like, you know, and um I suppose it it took a a superhuman like Kevin yeah. Hall to come along and say, "Hold on a minute here. Let's do it." So the paper that I actually want to talk about is a paper that was written in response uh to that and it's called the paper's called Do low carbohydrate diets increase energy expenditure? And it's a commentary actually and it's by uh Kevin Hall and um anybody uh who's unfamiliar with Kevin Hall is his background is 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 it mathematics or physics I thought it was I thought it was physics but I could yeah. be wrong It could be physics but but he's you know obviously within physics there's a huge amount of math um and Kevin Hall has done a huge amount of research into basically um coming up with different formulas for rates of weight loss and you know changes in metabolic rate really really smart guy like one of those guys that you know you you look at him and you go like yeah you're too smart to actually be a normal human being but like <laughs> uh absolute genius and he basically wrote a comment on this paper and he wanted to see if what they were talking about was was correct because he's done a few papers on on the differences between low fat and and low carb diets and one of the things that he noticed is that so whenever a study is going to be performed one thing that people have to do is you usually write up um you register your study and when you register your study you say everything that you're going to do in the study um and the only reason i know this is because i'm doing it at the moment and it's a pain in the ass but you you do that so basically anybody can look back and say okay you followed your plan you didn't make any changes what hall noticed was he read back on their original plan and he noticed that it was different from what they did and they changed their statistical approach when they were looking at their um when they were looking at the the results which is a little bit of an indication that something might be uh, a bit awry um but what they found one thing that they found was as was the main thing that they found was that in the group that they that they analyzed there was a discrepancy in the amount of food that they were supposed to be eating yeah. and in the weight main that they maintained so obviously the the weight maintenance group is supposed to be maintaining weight um and eating a certain amount of food but this was a these were all outpatients they were given their food also did you, did you i don't know if you saw this but the people who did the original study they got paid Three grand to do the study. Um, oh, God bless America. They have serious <laughs> money on studies over there. They got three grand to actually do the, the the original study, and they also got about three grand worth of food. So a total of like six grand remuneration. That was pretty impressive. Um, I'd love it if I had that kind of money for a study. Anyway, um, I digress. But they were supposed to eat their food outside of obviously not in the research setting. They were eating it in kind of a uh in in the real world um and they noticed that people were claiming to be eating a certain amount of food but they were maintaining their weight yeah. with a um a resting metabolic rate that was higher than the food intake that they were getting so they should have been losing weight but they weren't so what uh Kevin assumed was people were just eating more food outside of the study which was one of the things um that they were doing and because they didn't have any um way of identifying if people were kind of uh, sticking to their diet or sticking to their plan they had their, they had like they had no protocol to analyze that 
that's one possible reason for why the study can uh, was so high. Um, like, it seemed like something very, very simple, but it's the kind of thing that, you know, unless you go and delve into the data, like, like if, if you look at this, the comment that he makes, like, you know, you've seen it yourself, Rob, like, he had to go through and do a, a reanalysis of the entire study and make a few assumptions, which was pretty superhero in in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, one, to be able to spot it, and then two, to, well, you know, like, when I say, <laughs> it's funny, because I was like, the, the the conflict of interest section of the, the compliance with ethical standards, like, it's basically saying that Kevin Hall and David Ludwig have beef over, you know, <laughs> in, in the nicest way possible. So, like, it, it's just this thing, they're, they're going to continue because of the, the, long-standing debate that exists between the two camps anytime one of them publish something there's always going to be some sort of rebuttal on that on the basis so i mean maybe like maybe the, the assumption is there that oh we'll, we'll we'll get away with it or we'll we'll look at this but you know maybe thank goodness for for kevin hall for having the ability to parse the data and be like, actually, hold on a second. This isn't something. Because I know when this came out, there was a lot of people saying, see, 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 told you, metabolic advantage. Because that's what it appears to be always about. Like, there, there's a metabolic advantage to doing this mm-hmm. approach. Um, but again, it would appear that it isn't the case, as would generally be the, the feeling amongst um, certain individuals, at least, without a bias. But again... Um, yeah, it, it, like... Like I said, it, it, it takes somebody special, uh, like to go through that and, and find it out. I, d- I did like the the bit at the end about the, the beef between the two. Videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, another yeah. thing. Yeah. Go on. No, no, I was just gonna, I was gonna read it, but it's fine. Like, don't worry about it. Uh, another thing that they that they did in the original study is that they used double uh, double labeled water to um, calculate people's resting energy expenditure. Mm. Um, and when they were doing that, so one thing Kevin Hall mentioned is that when you're using doubly labeled water to um, to calculate resting energy expenditure, you have to make an assumption about uh, respiratory quotient. And like just for anybody who doesn't know, respiratory quotient is a kind of an indication of whether you're using uh, mostly carbohydrate or mostly fat or some sort of a combination of both. Um, basically, if you have a respiratory quotient of one, um, you are basically using all carbs. If you have a respiratory quotient of point, is it point seven or point seven nine? Um, uh, point seven nine. Something down like that. For that means you're using, you're burning all fats. Yeah. Um, so in the low carb group, obviously, um, in the original study, they assumed that people were burning all fats because they were on a on a very very low carbohydrate diet. But again, that this comes back to the discrepancy between how much people were eating and their um, and their metabolic rates. So there is a chance that people were eating other foods. We don't know if they were low carb foods. We don't know if they were uh, low fat foods. Um, so we can't assume that the respiratory quotient that they used in their calculations is correct. So again, like this is the kind of thing that you need to be an absolute brain. Yeah, a super genius to be able to do that. Like, you know, thank God, like, Kevin Hall is on the side of good, is all I can say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it's, yeah, it's one of those things you just got to be aware of. I mean, a lot of people won't pay attention to this kind of stuff, but it's pretty important. I mean, it kind of, it, it maintains the integrity of, I suppose, the scientific data process, probably. So, 
um, or at least the publishing aspect of important stuff. Because, you know, the way in which people are picking up on science from different um, communication methods these days can sort of mean that information like this gets out there as this is the these are the facts and so without someone who can kind of act as like the the um the robocop of (laughs) of of uh data of like statistics i think is you know we need that kind of that kind of character we need a murphy you know you you just gave kevin hall the coolest title the robocop of nutritional data um that's pretty cool um yeah, so yeah, it, it's one thing that's scary. I, like, I'm not going to say they fudged, like there's a term that I've heard used, they, I'm not going to say they fudged the data intentionally. I'm not going to say they didn't fudge the, the data intentionally, but it's something that can definitely happen in nutrition science. And when something like that happens, it, it can cause like really, really big repercussions because you have to think like, you know, if you took those the original results, like you would think, okay, right, low carb is the way to go. Like you're burning serious amounts of calories um, when you're doing it, and then you're like, oh, right, it's it's not uh, statistically significant at the end when you actually reanalyze it. Yeah. So um, I, I I'll be the first to say I have a I have a very very poor grasp of statistics, and that's why I I'm I desperately want to get better at it. But like I've been saying that for the past. Um, Seven years, I think. So, we'll see if it ever happens. I just don't like numbers. So, I don't like numbers, but I like numbers in the sense that I don't like qualitative data. I like quantity. I like I like to be able to put a number on my oh, on my okay, thing. Cool. But then I'll give it to somebody else to actually analyze things for me. Because, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's their role. Um, They're a statistician. You're not a statistician. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll just, I'm a I'll doctor, just not a physicist. <laughs> Exactly, um, but yeah, that was a that was a cool set of papers. We actually had like three uh, three papers each, so six papers total. I don't think that's realistic to get through tonight. So I think like with four papers, that's really really cool. Um, Rab, those, those were like a really really cool a cool mix as well. Like of um, yeah, it was it was actually surprisingly not as um, nerve wracking as I expected. No one heckled me about my um, analysis of you know methodology and results and discussion so I'm pretty happy with that. Well let, let's let's just be happy Alan Flanagan wasn't listening so yeah. <laughs> he could be here. <laughs> he'll have like some so he he'll have an actual superpower. He'll be like, oh somebody mentioned him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um no that was that was brilliant. Um Rap, uh, just if anybody wants to like we'll, we'll we'll wrap it up now but if anybody wants to follow you, how can they find you? Uh just um throw up the sign, you know? <laughs> no, but, uh, no, realistically, uh, over on Instagram uh, at Das Nutrition, I am on some form of in, um, Instagram sabbatical, but I've kind of been back a little bit because it's marathon season and people are are taking part in it, making sure that they fuel themselves correctly. And I've got a few other bits and pieces in the in the work, so I'm going to try and be doing a little bit more work on that. So that's where I'm at right now. Awesome. Rab, thank you very, very much for uh, sharing these papers with us. Um, no problem. Little... It's been a pleasure. Um, hopefully I will get to see you again soon because uh, getting to see you just, just last week just reminded me how much I miss, I miss seeing you know. in person. But yeah, have a great evening um, and I'll be chatting to you again soon. You too, Richie. Enjoy your evening, right? All right. Take it easy, man. Bye-bye. See you later.
Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. Um, if you did, please, please, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps spread word of the podcast to new listeners. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at b underscore more underscore nutrition. I'd also love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please feel free to comment on the podcast post or send me a message directly on Instagram. I'd love to hear what you have to say. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.